Hey there, I'm Pete Townsend, and this is Money Never Sleeps. We look inside the minds of entrepreneurs and at the crossover of startups, enterprise, finance, technology, and life as we know it. On the show this week, we've got Javier Tomashiro, co-founder and CEO of Osprey, one of the 12 founding teams forming the Techstars Web3 Accelerator class of 2023. Osprey is a comprehensive anti-money laundering compliance solution for virtual asset service providers that seamlessly integrates customer onboarding, blockchain monitoring, and the travel rule. With Osprey, institutions and SMEs serving the crypto and wider digital asset markets today can significantly reduce false positives, benefit from a single point of reference for travel rule data transactions, and automate and scale essential compliance operations. Before founding Osprey with Ann Winston and Yoko Pelinin in 2019, Javier's tour of duty in TradFi included stops at S&P Global Market Intelligence, Standard Chartered Bank, and Credit Suisse. All of this in business intelligence and reg tech type roles, and he has been actively involved in blockchain projects since 2014. In this episode, Javier and I explore the blend of Japanese and Argentinian cultures that made him who he is today, and the life experiences that led him to the Osprey vision. We then dive into crypto market growth as a proxy for the wider growth of digital assets and the role that compliance solutions can play in opening up the crypto floodgates for institutional capital. All right here on Money Never Sleeps. Javier Tamashiro. It's a very interesting name. That's a combination of Japanese and Argentinian descent, is it not? Yeah, it is. Essentially, I'm a first generation of Japanese immigrant in Argentina and a second and third generation of Italian family immigrant from Napoli and Naples and, and Sorrento. That, um, is, that is such a great combination of some of my favorite countries. I... Well, let let me let me back up on that because I absolutely adore sushi. I absolutely love chimichurri and empanadas. And you know what? I've been to Napoli once and headed right for Amalfi because Napoli was not nice. But <laughs> yeah, traffic is terrible. <laughs> it, it was it was the traffic that put me off Napoli. But it's a it's a really interesting combination and. What is it about that combination that has made you the individual that you are today? Is there something you can point to in that combination of cultures that that's interesting? Well, I mean, you know, there is a lot of things that could be said about that, especially because when you think about the kind of the Japanese society, it's, it's, it's very homogeneous. There's a term in, in Japanese called hafu. Essentially, it's a person that is, it's a key of an interracial couple. So it's a... Uh, Japanese and a non-Japanese, the, the kid of a Japanese non-Japanese person, right? So I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there, there, there a lot of things go, going on there, but essentially what I can say is that in my case, my mom is, is, is essentially very different from my dad because of her roots. Probably my mom is, is very emotional. She normally speaks very loud. My dad is more quiet and very rational. Yeah. So I, I guess that made me the person I am kind of coexisting with these two very antagonistic type of personalities. Sometimes maybe, you know, this very funny combination of living in Argentina and also having these two kind of very clear root make things very funny. For example, my, we, we, we normally eat Argentinian barbecue with asado. Chimichurri, yeah, asado, chimichurri, and also we mix that with Japanese rice. So nice. very, very strange stuff going on, but yeah. 
But I, I think, you know, when, when well, over the years, I think people, it's more kind of universal than for what you think. I, I essentially grew up in, in the south of Argentina, in Patagonia. But when I was a teen, I did an exchange program in Japan. I live in, in Nara for about one year. I don't know if you're familiar with the Rotary Club, but they have an exchange program that essentially is, is trying to develop global citizens, people that live in different countries and different mm-hmm. families. Yeah, and then, then do, when, when, when you live in different families, like a kid, you realize that people is very similar. Of course, there are some differences from a cultural point of view, but as human, people tend to be very similar, right? We all suffer the same things. We need love. And this essentially, there are not many different in that aspect, right? Yeah. When we, when we focus on the details, yeah, people, is, yeah, there, there might be some differences. But yeah, it, it, it's a matter of being tolerant and adapt to different social issues and situations. Totally, totally. No, I'm just always fascinated with people's upbringings and how wherever they grew up in the world and whatever their family influence was, how that impacted who they became, right? And there's, you know, like you said, your mother was probably the more perhaps outspoken one and your father being the more rational and reserved one. I had the same thing in my family. And that, but, you know, my dad grew up, well, my dad grew up in Argentina for about six years. I think I told you this. And oh, really? Okay. Yeah, b- yeah, back in the 60s. So he, I think from the age of 12 to 18. And my mom grew up in Massachusetts outside of Boston and, uh, well, way outside of Boston in a town called Athol. It's just a very interesting combination of the two of them. And I look at my own kids and I see a combination of, you know, my wife and, and me. And it's just interesting how the, all that continues to pass down. I, I wanted to get into Osprey in a minute and talk about what Osprey is. But before we do that, looking back at your background professionally, Javier, I could point to this continuing trend of you dealing with data and compliance for your entire professional career, it seems like, even during your time that you were building relationships with ambassadors with the Organization of American States, right? I saw on your LinkedIn profile that you had to, in quotes, meet regulatory requirements, right? So this has been kind of part of your story, your whole working life. How, how did this happen? How did you fall into this? Yeah, I think that I always had an interest in data. And I, I have to say that my, my, my bachelor is in economics. And my master's degree is in data science. I did a master's degree in Tokyo University and one semester in, in Imperial College, focused on artificial intelligence. So, yeah, so I think data is always, it always was there and, and trying to, you know, get the most of data and trying to build intelligence out of that. In, in every company that I've been working in all the fresh, there was always components of analytics and implementation of how, how to pr- provide information that make people's decision smarter. Probably what happened in, in the last couple of years with the, the company is that we, we identify that there is kind of an opportunity with blockchain because there is a whole industry being built. And essentially uh, uh, there is a gap in this industry and in the sense of how the compliance system that exists in banking can be applied in blockchain. Right. And yep. with that comes a lot of elements that I learned at the university that has to do with analytics, artificial intelligence, controls, 
what I'm doing right now, it connects many dots, right? Of my career and my, my education. My mentor at Tokyo University was professor called Yutaka Matsuo, probably is one of the most prominent people in artificial intelligence in Japan. He and I, I learned a lot of things. He kind of built this idea that we can build companies. And I, if I have to say when Osprey started, I think I, I would say that it started in Japan in that lab. So I started thinking, oh, well, I can do a company, right? So these people in this lab are making video games or building applications. So I thought, well, let's maybe I, I should do the same, right? So from, from that point, as soon as I had the opportunity, uh, I started doing some projects, right? Yeah. So, okay. I got it. No, it makes a lot of sense in hearing you talk about this, that the bachelor's degree in economics, the master's in engineering and technology and AI and data and driving into that and working through the first few roles of your career and then opening up kind of this landscape for you to say, well, okay, you've got an idea and that mixed with that idea or blended in with that idea is this deep firsthand experience of the problem that you're solving, right? In on the data side and in the compliance side as well. Like you said, what was that foundation set the scene for me in terms of how you and Yuka and Anne got together to start building Osprey? Right. So we all met in Singapore. Singapore had the first, probably the first law on crypto of the world. But essentially, we got this amazing place from where we were able to test our initial ideas. Actually, I'm going to confess something. So we can be, before we build the first product, we started kind of selling reports in PDF reports. So it took yeah. us like a couple of weeks. So we make a few reports and then we talk to people, Hey, we can do this report for you. So you, you don't need to, let's say you have your onboarding clients and then you can screen wallets and try to identify situation of risk. We can do that report for you. Right. So we were selling PDF essentially reports. We got some traction, but essentially eight, like five years ago, we had this really good space from where we were able to test many of our initial ideas, the product. And we met through our personal network. Yuka was working in Prudential, I think, in yep. financial current compliance. And myself, I was working in uh, Standard Charter. And then we met Anne through some friends, but essentially we all were sharing the same passion about blockchain and the, the, the value that this whole new area was bringing, right? So did, did this, essentially the idea of Osprey started from, from our experience in traditional finance. So we, we, we got involved in a couple of crypto projects back in 2015, as at the same time we were working in, in banking and we kind of smelled the, the opportunity in the sense that, okay, so if this is really going to grow and serious money come into this area, this is going nowhere without compliance, because very soon we'll, we'll start touching elements that are critical for the economy. Like for example, you know, taxation, foreign policy, security, maybe we can go deeper into that, but essentially the, the, the whole idea of compliance, maybe the, the terms doesn't sound super sexy, but it's at the core of whatever industry we're building web three, right? And essentially we are in 2023 and what we see right now is that 
the same people that is writing regulation for crypto is the same people that writes regulation for traditional finance. So we should not be surprised that many things are being designed and developed in the same way. Yeah. Right. Yeah, definitely. And I, I, I want to come back to that, but why don't you give us a, a, a deeper dive into what Osprey actually is and why is it something that the world needs right now? Osprey is a digital asset compliance platform. Companies in that are building up business and they are operating, let's say, from Europe, from Singapore, from Hong Kong, or from North America. Very soon, they will need to obtain a license to operate because they will be considered as another financial institution, right? And for that, they need systems, they need control, and they need software. So Osprey is one of the few companies in this segment that is providing infrastructure for digital asset compliance. More specifically, what you can do with our solution is three things. We can help you with your digital identity of your clients. You can validate and run the divisions. We can help you with transaction monitoring, which in crypto terms is blockchain analytics. And we can help you essentially with cross-border payments. So essentially there is a new requirement called the travel rule. For people that is not very familiar with that, the travel rule is like the sweep network for crypto. And essentially in the next two, three years, companies that are making transactions between two different countries or even within the same country, they will need to include PII information of their client inside the transaction. PII and is? Essentially your client's information, right? Your name, the name. Personally, identifiable, personally identifiable information. Is that, is that yeah, what correct. it is? Correct. Yeah. Right. So maybe think, think about when you make a banking transaction and then the bank is asking you, what is the swift code? Mm -hmm. And with that, you need to include, okay, who is the recipient? What's the, the recipient entity? Their address. The address, right? So at the end of that process, what happens is when the transaction gets complete, there is a message that Swift built in the backend that includes a lot of data, a lot like maybe 50 fields. And those fields include the sender, the recipient, addresses, entities involved, amount, and that information is being used for many, a few reasons. One, it could be sanction screening. Also, the financial institution will use information to identify there is any risk element that they need to pay attention and eventually freeze your transaction. So yeah, so all, all these, these processes that exist in banking now are going to be implemented in crypto or the space. So maybe back to your question why we are relevant. So essentially, these new requirements is creating a huge amount of pressure in the, the digital asset industry because it's something new, have not done before. So there is a lack of technical infrastructure, knowledge, skills. It's going to be implemented in, in the next couple of months. So companies are really struggling because essentially a, a full implementation of these requirements could affect your operational cost or even that you may not even you ever get a license or you may lose your license, right? So it's a really mission critical. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. In, in hearing you talk about this, Javier, it kind of reminds me of, I think it was back 2012, 2013, maybe even a little bit before that, with the implementation of derivative trade reporting in Europe and where derivative transactions were previously what was, you know, kind of called unswiftable. They were not, they, they did not work with the SWIFT network. 
And so when you were sending regular transaction messages around, whether that was securities or it was cash, you could do that all over the Swift network, right? It kind of reminds me that it's not only just for banking information where it's required, where you need to know, you want to know where the money's coming from so you can assign it to the right account or where the securities are coming from or where it's going to. It's that from a compliance perspective, you need to be able to report on that stuff, right? So when you think about what happened with derivatives, people made tons of money you know, 10 years ago on building software to do derivative trade reporting to the different trade repositories. And there, and it, this is a little bit different, right? Because this is just a transaction, a crypto transaction going between two crypto service providers. But it's still the same idea that these senders and receivers both need help with how they're going to send and receive the data and also store it, make sense of it and report on it, right? Essentially. Yeah, and also maybe it's important to highlight the complexity of this implementation because yeah. let's say in the European Union, you may have MICA regulation. Yeah. If people, again, says nobody, if you are not familiar with this term, probably you can Google and you will find. So there is a new, a new regulation called MICA that essentially is regulating the whole industry. But let's say that when you are making transaction between the European Union and Australia or the European Union and Singapore, they have multiple jurisdictions that may be implementing controls or regulating digital assets at a different speed, right? So all this yep. discussion about the, the travel rule, it may, may happen at different speed globally, right? So this increases the complexity because mm -hmm. if you are an exchange, for example, in Berlin, and you're trying to make a transactions to Sao Paulo and the, the exchange in Sao Paulo doesn't have a travel rule solution yet, then you have two options. Either you upset your client because the transaction cannot move forward or you move forward and you may be breaching the local regulation, right? So one of the way we are helping companies is by enabling them to, in this transitional period where there will be kind of gray areas so they you can move forward with the payment, even that even if the, the counterparty doesn't have a travel solution at the moment, right? So you create a log of transactions that have been initiated with information that you need to show compliance. And when the counterparty entity go live with a travel solution, either Osprey solution or other company solutions can complete the information that it's missing, right? Gotcha. No, it's it's exciting. And they, because the, the digital asset landscape is still quite so nascent that there's just so much to build and, you know, love the fact that you guys are have, have built this and are are now live with it as well. What does Osprey look like when, say, BTC and ETH or Bitcoin and Ethereum are both mainstream financial assets, right? And I think the, you know, in the US, at least the CFTC have referred to BTC and ETH as commodities. When BTC and ETH are mainstream financial assets, what do you what will Osprey look like? Do you think it's going to look the same or is this, what will Osprey become? Yeah, interesting question. The key value proposition that we bring is make things easier, simplify, and then you need, you can have one console, one user interface for your compliance team. So they don't need to go across different system. The data in the backend is integrated. So you have one API that you can connect. And from a commercial point of view, you can have one single contract. But of course, that uh, depending on the size of your company, having the all-in-one solution may or may not be relevant. When we talk to tier one banks, the pitch is slightly different from when we talk to SMEs. So maybe talking a, a, a little bit about tier one banks, what we see is that the, as the, the, the industry evolved into a, a much larger volumes, let's say 
you are a company that is processing millions of transactions of digital asset payments per day, very soon there will be a need of a compliance system that is able to, to process that amount of payments with a very small number of false positive alerts, mm -hmm. right? That's a critical element in compliance because essentially when you have many transactions that happen to get blocked, immediately that affect your cost, your operation cost. So if we don't have a smart system in, in, in digitalized compliance, essentially it, it made possible that no tier one banks can, can process and scale uh, the, this, this, this process, this, these payments, right? So for that, you need a smart system that are able to distinguish what is a high risk transaction from a low risk transaction. For that, we need better data and integrated system. So all these element matters. So essentially the big financial institutions at, as, as they grow in the, the, the volume of transactions they process per time unit, we need to get smarter, right? And smarter means that you can make better decisions with the, and you can minimize the number of errors of the system. That essentially is the value proposition when we talk to big institutions. When we talk to SMEs, what we sell is essentially the integrated platform, the all-in-one, right? What I yeah. just said, one console, one API, one contract, right? Yeah, yeah, they're, they're gonna need the whole thing. And you know, with the bigger ones, it's, it's obviously land and expand and land and expand and expand not only what you're able to do for them right now based upon your current product roadmap, but what you will be building down the road as the regulatory landscape evolves from one jurisdiction to the next, right? So, exactly. it, it, you know, on, on that point, Javier, in our, our first week in Dublin, that you heard me say that each one of the companies we invested in with this Techstars Web3 class, right, that that each company fit our investment thesis in some way, shape or form, really in their own unique way. And that I tell your story, I tell you all that story at some stage. And I think you asked me specifically, you're like, Pete, what was that? What was that point? Right. And though, you know, above all else, we, we'd like you and Anne and Yucca as a founding team. But beyond it, we saw Osprey as something that could unlock the trillions of dollars of institutional capital sitting on the sidelines right now of crypto. And but I think there's also another thing there, which is a spot Bitcoin and spot Ethereum ETF. But the SEC in the US are showing no signs of abating on that. And while a couple of years ago, I think it could have been a quicker timeline, I think with with the with the regulatory rhetoric going on in the US right now, it's, it's going to be a little while. So some people that I talked to about Osprey before we pulled the trigger of investing in you guys, we're like, what the hell does RegTech have to do with Web3? And I'm like, hold on, let me tell you. So that if we want to grow Web3, we need to bring Web2 users and institutions on board. And the only way to do that is in a way that makes the uninitiated feel safe. So regulated assets like ETFs can do that, obviously, but also simple and scalable crypto compliance can make these institutions feel safe and so that they can build trust with their own customers in digital assets. I think we're going to need both, right? I think we're going to see this great unlock of institutional capital coming in through ETFs. I think that's only going to be a five to seven year journey though, because what's going to happen is that big bump of institutional capital coming in will afford the development of even better UX that will point out to these institutions that they don't actually need an ETF to hold crypto to hold digital assets. They can just do it themselves. Right now it's too complicated for them. 
it can be far simpler. But I, I think the, the compliance side of this is absolutely critical to help us get there. What do you think the crypto industry needs to get us from about $1 trillion in value that we have right now in crypto up to, say, $10 trillion plus by the year, say, 2030? Yeah, okay. And so maybe let me go back to one of my previous points. When, when we started this company and we, we pitched companies in this space, there was this kind of idea, especially coming from CEOs, that blockchain will beat the financial industry, banks will disappear, and everything's going to be conquered by blockchain. So again, so we are in 2023 and nothing like that happened. And there yeah. is after what happened last year with FTX, you know, there is a growing consensus that regulations and compliance is going to help to go somewhere, right? So essentially part of our pitch is that we are kind of the enablers of the industry. We are building bridge between a, a tiny niche industry into a massive industry. I think you, you said three trillion dollar. Yeah, it's one trillion. One uh, trillion. It was a peak of three. Now it's yeah. one. And I would like to see it go to 10. I think right. that would be the next plateau for a little while. Right. So the, the, I think that the idea is super simple. I mean, it's not, there is not much complexity. Is that you, you don't get into that game if you don't have clear rules. As simple as that. So essentially what compliance can bring to the table is help institutional player or wealthy people that feel interested about Web3 and blockchain. We, we are essentially building the trust, right? And I'll just give you an example that is, it probably is very visual, but Five years ago, when if you if you were a crypto company building anything like let's say an IC, an ICO or payments or tokenization, and you try to open a bank account, it wasn't possible, right? Because you are immediately when you said blockchain, you were in you had many red flags, and that created a lot of friction and problems, right? Essentially, what would we think it's the the, the direct and compliance can be is this common ground, this common language that traditional finance and digital asset can understand each other, right? So let's unlock the whole financial industry with this new industry. And also let's bring all the, 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 the wealth that exists in traditional finance into this space, right? We should not fight that. We should bring digital asset to the center of the system. We are essentially building new financial instruments. So when, when that happened, yeah. Automatically, this is connected to key elements of the economy, like taxation, foreign policy, security, justice. So how possibly we can truly build something big if we don't have that as part of the equation? There, yeah. there is not a massive industry without compliance. This will bring a lot of challenges. So essentially, we are here to facilitate and enabling companies not to fail or, or make things essentially better and faster. And yeah, so we, we, this is essentially what makes us feel super excited about what we are building, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, and I, I think I shared with you before, Javier, that, you know, what, what, one of the parts of my journey with blockchain that started back in 2015 was around getting very excited about the financial markets and a, a brand new infrastructure for financial markets. And then after a couple of years of tracking this and following this and talking to institutions about it, that it was became clear that if we wanted to move traditional financial instruments into to become tokenized assets, that it, there was going to be a large change management, a large technology project, a large digital transformation project that needed to be undertaken by a number of financial institutions all at the same time. 
And that is something that takes a lot of political capital at the top of organizations to do. And it's it's very, very difficult, just like any other technology change project. You know, there's a long journey with that, right? But so I kind of came back to the instance of, well, this is a brand new financial asset in the palm of people's hands on their phones. They're going to use it or they're not going to use it. And as more and more interest grows in this, the institutions are just going to have to adapt to it. And that over time, I still believe that traditional financial assets will become tokenized. It's just that it's going to, there will be this kind of intersection point that happens between the everyday use of digital assets around the world with this tipping point at the institutional level of more assets being in the digital form than being in the analog form. I think we will hit that. And that, you know, in order to get there and to get there safely, we're going to need compliant solutions. So, yeah, maybe two, two more things to say about compliance. What was also when we talk to companies, to kind of the pitch is also trying to develop in CEO's mind that you, you have an opportunity with compliance because essentially it's always perceived that we fall into a kind of the cost part of the equation. But thinking the other way, so you essentially have the chance to build trust with your investors, with your clients, your partners, that your business is going to be sustainable over time. You're not going to be fine. You're going to get the license and your transaction is going to go through, right? At this stage, you should think compliance in a different way, right? Yeah. So this is this one of the things that okay. we, 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 we are constantly seeing when, when we talk to companies in the market. Okay, cool. I mean, again, very much a here and now, absolutely necessary with all, with everything going on in the crypto markets and everything going on with the, with digital assets overall, that what you're doing is again, glad you're here thinking about the future. If you did have a time machine, right. And I asked Greg Hannum this question for the first time last week, that if you could go visit your 60 year old self, and have that chance to talk to your 60-year-old self about what yourself had gone through over the last number of years. What would be your 60-year-old self's words of wisdom back to you? Yeah, yeah, tough question. But maybe I think this question in a different way. When, when I was a kid, I, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to build a company. I had these old ideas about things that could, I could develop. So yeah, I'm, I'm essentially doing what I dream, right? So I, I live in my dream. Very tough dream, by the way. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess that when when I became 60, I'm just going to be happy that uh, I took this risk. And, and and at the end of the day, it's just something kind of philosophical, but when you when you do what you want, in a, in a way you're kind of building a, a better version of yourself with all the complexity that that means, right? But I'm doing what I want. Right. So I guess that when I, I get older, I, I don't see, I won't see that I, I, I was missing any opportunity. I, this, this is what I want to do. Right. So being here and talking to you is what I want to be. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I'd say that, that, that words of wisdom then would be back to today's Javier Tomashiro from your six year old self would be Javier, keep taking risks. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I, everyone's got a different risk appetite. That's one of the big things I've learned in being in this space for the last seven years and just realizing that and respecting it and having friends that have stayed within financial institutions, they continue to do that because their risk appetite is different. Right. And so it, it, it's all about how much of that risk you can bear with building what you want to build. Well, but then also you can think about the, what, what the definition of risk, maybe the risk is not doing 
what you want, right? So the risk is that maybe you get old and you've been living a life that you didn't want to. Yeah, that's a good, good right? point. Good point. Listen, at, at the beginning of this chat, Javier, we got into a few things about you. Mm-hmm. And some of this, obviously, that you could piece together from a couple of initial conversations we had, and then your LinkedIn profile as well. But tell me, what would be one thing that we wouldn't expect to know about you? Yeah, I mean, probably it's this connected to this idea of compliance. Something I, I've seen is that when, when you work in compliance, maybe people is expecting that you, are very, you have a very compliance mentality, mentality that you always want to follow the rules. There is a lot of misunderstanding there. I think that if you are an entrepreneur and you're working in compliance, you're essentially building a system. In my case, I feel like I'm really like a doer. I love to do things. So yeah, probably people may think that because we are in the compliance space, like I, I just want to follow the rules and that's my expectation with anyone that I'm talking and trying to institutionalize people and bring that the system to the whole industry. Maybe something we didn't talk, but it, it's also thing that something that we need to discuss and we have our own opinion. How much compliance and regulations could eventually heal innovation, mm-hmm. right? So maybe we don't, we, we don't need to talk about this, but this is something that we, we have our own opinion, but it's certainly something that it's important. So we need to have, you know, common rules and things that help us go global and scale the whole industry. But innovation should be at the center of the discussion as well, right? Because if we, the only thing that we are doing is just repeating the same without no new ideas at the center of the discussion. Things get very boring, right? I, yeah, I, I mean, I think some, something will come after it. I mean, you know, you look at the financial markets, you had traditional stocks and bonds and, you know, the development of in the 70s electronic trading. Right. And then into the 70s and 80s, you had derivatives starting to make make some waves. And then that carried through the 90s and then some more financial engineering in the early 2000s with things like credit default swaps. And those became mainstream. And then right around the time we started having hedge fund regulation in 2009, 2010, well, a little thing called Bitcoin came out of the woodwork right in 2009. So and that's now been a journey. And I think each step being, you know, and, and the, the ideas for crypto go back way before 2009. And we, we could spend a whole episode going down that rabbit hole. With crypto specifically, there is a context of that that is an everyday asset used for commerce at individual and at business level in, in ahead of us, right? I'll leave it at that. There's also a way for an individual to just completely live their life with crypto and to do that without a bank, do that through a self-custody manner. And that, you know, in the same way that people live on cash today. So I think it's a very interesting asset. I think there will be tons more derivatives that come out of this. You are very right in that we cannot let the need for, I don't want to call it compliance, don't want to call it safety, don't want to call it regulation. The need for, for individuals to be protected, you don't want that to stifle innovation. Right. I'm with you on that. What is the best way for people to get in touch with you, Javier, and learn more about Osprey? Well, so people can connect with us. They can visit the website, osprey.io. I'm very responsive in LinkedIn. You just need to search my name, Javier Tamashio, or you can send me an email, javier.tamashio at osprey.io. I'm also 
have a Twitter account. You can search me. Yeah, and I'm happy to talk to anyone that is interested in what we are doing. I, I would hope so. <laughs> Very good. Very good. And I know that. All right. Well, listen, Javier, thank you so much for coming on to the show. It's been a great chat. And I know I'll be talking to you again later on. Thank you, B. Thanks for having me. Great. Thanks. That does it for this week, folks. Thanks to Javier for opening up his mind to help us figure out why he does what he does. And you can learn more about Javier and Osprey in the show notes on our website, moneyneversleeps.ie. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify as it helps others to find the show. Thanks to Conan Brophy from Create Sound for mixing and editing this episode. Conan is an excellent media man to get in touch with when you're thinking about launching your own podcast. As for me, I'm an early stage startup investor focused on where fintech meets crypto and crypto meets Web3, and I lead the Techstars Web3 Accelerator. There are plenty of links in the show notes on moneyneversleeps.ie on how to get in touch, so don't hesitate to reach out. Finally, till next time, thanks for listening. See you! Money never sleeps.